Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hello and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. It's Cindy House, and I host this podcast. So glad you found us. Uh, I encourage you, if you'd like to keep in touch with us, the best way to do it is through our monthly newsletter. You can sign up for that at basicfolk.com. You can also find social media links. We're basically on all the platforms at basicfolkpod. Also, we are a listener-supported operation, and if you'd like to make a small monthly contribution, you can do so at our website. Once again, that is basicfolk.com. Okay, Amy Ray. Very happy to present this. Amy Ray is best known for being one half of Indigo Girls with Emily Saliers, a band that's been going strong since the late 80s. She's also known for her activism and love for all types of music. On her latest solo album, If It All Goes South, Amy's bringing us songs of comfort and healing. Recorded live to tape in Nashville, this album features an incredible lineup of guests like Brandi Carlisle, I'm With Her, Allison Russell, Phil Cook, and Allison Brown. She's confronting racism, homophobia, religion, and mortality in her songs, and we go deep into those topics. Aside from exploring gender identity and being comfortable in your own body, I actually had an agenda in our interview. I've talked a little bit on this podcast, but recently our dog Willis suddenly and unexpectedly died. Amy's new album features the song Muscadine, which was written when her oldest dog passed away. The song's about learning to love and receive love in the purest way and not to be picky about life, but to stay the course with curiosity and gratitude. I was grateful for Amy's words of wisdom about the loss of a dog, and I'm very happy to share them with you. Actually, Amy's full of wisdom and is always so open to whatever questions come her way. Enjoy this conversation with a very, very good person. It's Amy Ray on Basic Folk. Amy Ray, thanks for talking to me today. It's so great to see you. It's good to see you, too. Uh, so you were on this podcast, uh, it was a really good episode of this podcast called LGBTQ&A, talking about discovering gender and sexual fluidity and like being able to recognize that you experience gender dysphoria. You said you don't feel at home in your body, but like enough so that you choose not to transition. Let me know if I'm getting any of this wrong, because it was like a year ago, so things, you know, oh, could no, have it changed. Sounds, it sounds right. It's, you use she, her pronouns, but identify as genderqueer. And on the pod, I thought it was funny you called yourself a lady man, um, which I don't know if you were meaning to be funny, but I mean, it's such a good description of you. Your career and your peers have been like so women focused. So how has that played into your experience with your gender? Wow, that's an interesting question. Um, 
Well, I think the mentors that I have that are women and the collaborators, you know, they really inspire me to embrace that side of myself, you know, and love it and help me probably to come around to a place that was clearly in tune with being, you know, the woman part of me. And I think, cause I think for me, as I was coming up, I could not always separate my own sort of socialized misogyny from my struggles with my gender, you know, and my body and stuff. So I had to really figure out a way to get clear of that. And I think women collaborators and all the women that I look up to and women musicians and that experience has always helped me with that. And also I'm, you know, I'm a feminist. So it's like, I want to champion women in music and in mm-hmm. activism and politics. And a lot of my mentors that have meant the most to me and Emily too are women. So I think it's just, it figures in heavily. And I think when I struggle with gender issues, you know, I have a whole other set of queer community people that help me through that too, you know. Mm. It's just it's just having allies, right? And then mm. I have a lot of men in my life that are uber feminist, you know, like uh, Justin Justin Vernon, you know, Bon Iver. He's like of a generation and of an ilk of it's a certain tribe of men that are just so pro-women and they really help you. They, that also helps because sometimes you just need some validation you know, in a mainstream kind of heterodynamic way, I guess, or whatever. I don't know how to put that, but mm. I guess sometimes you need every, you need the whole community, I guess, in every aspect of it to feel that you're not just in your bubble of who's mentoring you, but you're also reaching out beyond that and you're finding allies out there too, which you forget that you have when you're scared and feel uh, sort of inferior and, and put down and, and all that. Yeah. In what ways do you work to be at home in your body? And is it all about gender for you there? Or are there other aspects at play? Well, I mean, that's a good question, right? (laughs) Uh, And how do I do it? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, because body image is just is tied up in society too, right? So it's like weight and skin and, you know, hair and like weird stuff that we get a concerned about right Mm. and so in vanity and I don't because I I had a hard time separating that from my own misogyny and like it's like women you know our body image is so different from like men's I mean I guess maybe not as much now in society but you know we're very like conditioned to think that smaller is better and skinny and streamlined and all that stuff you know and then and then that kind of is a weird thing because it's like if you're a woman and you're going through puberty and then you get also as you age, your body is shifting all the time. So, you know, it's, it's, it's always tempting to hate yourself, (laughs) Mm. but you know, but I think what I do is, um, I don't know. I just look at my, I, 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 that's another case where I look at my mentors. I have some friends that are like just really relaxed in their bodies and like, I don't know. They just like, they don't worry about anything and they just like let it hang out and dress how they want. And, you know, I'm afraid to even put a bathing suit on sometimes, you know, and they're just like, whatever you like, you know what I mean? And so I just Mm -hmm. think about them. (laughs) I pick some people that I love that aren't worried about that. And I focus on 
their self-acceptance. That's how I, I mean, that's how I do it. And then I do, I'm like a, you know, I like physical activity. So I work out a lot and I hike and I swim and run and just everything. And sometimes that makes me feel at home, you know, in what I am. And sometimes I walk around the house with no clothes on and, you know, just, you know what I mean? Just try to like honor it somehow. And then we hang, you know, we hang out, um, you know, Emily and I do a lot of work with native communities that do activism and, you know, that's pretty helpful too, because those communities are, a lot of those elders that we look up to are very, um, they're very enlightened about your body and the gift of it and all that, you know, and so it's a different culture and it helps you with your own, I think. Mm. You've had some pretty incredible mentors, men and women throughout your career. So what did you learn from your mentors about how to be a mentor, like for better or for worse? And what is what kind of like responsibility do you feel towards mentorship? <laughs> for better or worse, I love that. Um, <laughs> yeah, because there are lessons you learn the other, other way too, right? Um, well, our first mentors were women in the Atlanta community that were about 10 years older than us, musicians, and they always shared their stage with us. And so our initial lesson was just like, share your stage, you know? And, and then REM came along and they were like our, the big, this big part of our lives that really helped guide us for a while. And what we learned from them was the same thing about the sharing your stage, but also like treating your opening bands really well, um, how to run your business, like in and try to think about, you know, the environment and be more ecological in your business model too. And like, they were just really cutting edge for us about like thinking about that stuff. So that helped us learn about like the continuity of your beliefs, you know, politically and socially through your business too and your actions. And then mm-hmm. later on, I think like our mentors, like our activist mentors, like Winona LaDuke and all the women from Honor the Earth, from the Indigenous Women's Network, and all the activists that we knew really taught us about grassroots organizing in this way that defers to community all the time. And it's very, it's it's more humble than what we had been brought up in. So that was good. And then I guess, you know, the things that I've seen that are negative you know, it's just, you know, if I watch people that other acts that I'm on festivals with or, or playing with or whatever in times and I see them, I, you know, you see them not treat their crew well or not treat their opening act well or something like that happens. I just go note to self, you know, <laughs> and like in mirror and I mirror like times when I may have not done the right thing by looking at that and saying, oh, that reminds me of me. When I did this, note to self, don't do that. And also just watch, I watch a lot of shows. And so like people singing and shows. So, you know, I, I like look at it and I keep a mental note of like what, mm. what is like when you're on stage, like I, I guess like one thing I notice sometimes is like if people in the audience are talking and someone's performing and they ask them to be quiet, it always gives me a weird feeling <laughs> inside because <laughs> I'm always like, don't try to control your audience. Just let them be because you got to, if you want them to be quiet, you have to be, you kind of have to be good enough to get them to be quiet and just work at that, you know? So, but that's only from seeing it happen, like, and being in the audience myself. 
And I just try to be aware of like, and always learning. Cause I'm like, you know, there's a lot to learn from like younger artists and older artists. It's not always mm-hmm. people that are older. A lot of times it's younger people that are like doing something where I'm like, Oh, that's a good way to do that. Or that's so creative. Why didn't we think of that? You know? So it's, yeah, there's a lot of mentoring two ways, I think. Cool. Yeah. All right, I have a bunch of questions about your new record. Oh, okay, okay. So let's get into that. Um, the album, If It All Goes South, is your 10th solo record. You said you wrote a lot of this album during the pandemic and you were trying to write songs that were healing and offered comfort. Where did you find healing and comfort in the pandemic and how are you holding on to that? Well, I found it through my my family. I mean, my, my partner, Carrie, and my child, Ozzy, Ozlin, um, she's, you know, just like a little beacon of, of light and energy <laughs> and sort of, you know, and compassionate and has a lot of good qualities. So I got to spend a lot of time with her. And I guess I, I got to, through all the pain of seeing the suffering and feeling like paralyzed by that and not feeling like you could affect much change, you know, mm. it helps to have this little being running around who's just existing in a way that's different, you know, and yet she had a lot of compassion and understood what was going on around her because she's eight. But, you know, it's that helped. I was in the woods. I live in the woods. So I got I had a really good situation. Honestly, I had the woods and a river and a couple of families that had kids that were friends. And we just basically set up a table outside. And I mean, honestly, it was like better than anybody else I know had it. So I always felt lucky. You know, and I worked at a soup kitchen part of the, I mean, a food bank part of the time, Mm -hmm. um, which really helped me because uh, I live in a town that's got a lot of poverty. And I mean, when that hit, it was, and everybody started losing their jobs. It was really like, like rough in the community that I'm in. So I went to the food bank and worked there for a while because it just made me feel like more aware and, and I guess just trying to do anything I could to feel like I was doing something because it just felt like, oh my God, I'm so privileged. And then I did, I went to protest and marched um, in Atlanta a lot. And then How had far some, are you from Atlanta? About 75 miles, 80 miles. And then I did have a rally and I organized with some other people and we have a very white rural kind of town, but we do have a larger growing Hispanic population and some black folks there that are, that have been there a long time that are, really like awesome activists in the area as well. So we kind of got an anti-racist rally together, which was pretty hard because I got a lot of resistance from the chamber of commerce and all that people that I know it's not, it's people I know. And they'd be calling me like, like, Hey, Amy, do you really, the sheriff called me, you know, everything. Do you really have to call this an anti-racism racism rally? Can't we just call it like a unit unity rally or something? And I was like, you guys, like we have to use this, like you got to get used to this word. Like it's, it's real, you know? And so, but it was, you know, it was super successful and it was like, uh, I don't know, inspiring. I had a couple of speakers come that were, you know, really great black activists. I had a young gay black queer woman who's an editor at the local paper where I live, which is crazy because it's like an 80% white town. Mm -hmm. And she came and spoke and it was like, I mean, she was, she killed it, you know, it was amazing. So a lot of good stuff happened. And I think like that stuff, you know, for me, 
was like the kind of thing I tried to focus on because I think healing was like the most important thing during that time, you know, and still is. I think it's, there's a lot of people, we lost a lot of people and a lot of people are really sad. And so I was like, I want to write songs that are, that have some kind of message of like, you're not alone, you know, like mm. something, you know, like reach out instead of in or something. You were talking about how you recorded the record in Nashville live to tape, which was a challenge. Um, you were talking about like having a string section in one room, the bands in the main room, the backup singers are somewhere else. <laughs> and you said, even though the parameters were much stricter, I think it really added to the character of the record. What do you like about working with parameters or limitations and how do they allow you to flex your creativity? Well, they sort of, because you have some parameters, it frees up some other things, I think, because then that's kind of, those questions are answered. You, you're like, well, we have 24 tracks. <laughs> that's mm -hmm. it. So that answers that. So you can, you just don't have, there's some things that you don't have to worry about anymore. And so it, it's just a different emphasis on when the work happens, because when you're recording digitally and you're going to comp a lot of things there's a lot of work on the on the tail end of things, you know, and if you have, you know, 48 tracks, that's a lot of work to go through those tracks and figure out what what fits together. But if you only have 24, you have to make everything work on the front end, which I just enjoy because it's like we we did our pre-production digitally through the Internet, like through emails and just like working with digital tracks to create what the arrangement would be. And then we got there in person and worked more live. And then that, the parameter of like, okay, we've got eight days to record everything and we'll mix later, you know, it's like, good. Because then you're like, okay, you get there in the morning and you just work on the song and you can't get in the weeds too much because you got to like make it happen. And I just, it, to me, it just makes it more spontaneous and everything. And then if everybody's playing together, and it's all happening at once. I mean, we did, we certainly did some overdubs. Like we did, you know, our banjo player could only be there two days, but we needed her on four songs. So she came back and overdubbed on a couple of things. But, or the backup singers would do the live version and then they would double track as an overdub. So we did do some things in that way when we had like a couple extra tracks, we would use them. But every, it was great because we all were like, it's like team effort. So everyone's listening really carefully to everybody else. And there's a certain joy that happens when you're doing it that way. And I didn't even, for me, I've, we've always made our country records like this, like live to tape, because it's just uh, more organic and the sound is better for the kind of music we're doing. But, but like when, like when the string section was there for like the song Subway, you know, it was really cute because they were all like excited because of they, they're younger and they don't, they have never gone straight to tape. So for them, it's a new experience. And so they were just like psyched about it. Right. And yeah. ner and nervous, like, cause they got to get it right. You know, cause everybody has to get it right at the same time. I don't know. So that brings an energy that I love, you know, and it, and it, and it's kind of like one of those weird things where you think it would make people more cautious because they're nervous, but it actually does the opposite because once everybody gets into the spirit of it, people just go for it, you know, and then when you had, if you wanted to change something, like if you, like if you, if your guitar, if like if Jeff, our guitar player, if he was like, I didn't like that lead on the version that we use, it's basically like, okay, make your case because you either get rid of the whole lead that you taped and do the whole thing over again to what we have. We're not punching in, we're not comping, we're not doing any of that. You got to do the whole thing again. Mm -hmm. And so people would like, 
have to just, you know, make a decision right then. And everybody was up to their own. It was up to your own judgment and you had to convince all of us. So it was kind of fun because you'd be like, you know, we'd have this conversation. You know, the backup singers would be like, oh, we screwed that section up. And we would be like, we loved it, you know. (laughs) And then they would be like, no, let us try again. I was like, well, you got to make your case. And then they would point out what happened and we'd be like, all right, go in there and try it again. So do you something. think this would make a good reality TV show? <laughs> Probably with a more exciting person than me, but, you know, <laughs> or more controversial. <laughs> it's pretty like, it, you know, there's not a lot of drama. It's just like fun. <laughs> yeah, <So>. yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, so i got questions about songs on the album. I wanted to start uh, with Joy Train. riding your bike around Jackson, Mississippi on tour and you came across a revival and you said it inspired me to write about how we need to get on the joy train instead of dwelling on the cage of our troubles. Can you talk about what that revival was like and how it inspired you? It was, it was crazy. It was like out of a dream. I mean, I'm just riding my bike and I get into like more of a, a, a slightly more rural area. I can't even remember which road it was, but I saw some uh, men on horseback, um, some black guys on horseback. And um, and then I looked in the where they were kind of riding around this perimeter and it was like a church service. And I was like, that's so cool. <laughs> they're like, <laughs> you know, like I'm not guarding, but they're, you know, keeping keeping it all together, I guess, on their horses. And there's this revival going on and it's like a you know, just like a Sunday church service. And it was uh, mostly people of color and, and it was a Christian revival. And um, I don't know, I just was like, this is amazing. Like this whole scene is like killer. And I'm seeing, and I'm riding my bike, you know? And I just love seeing things like that when I'm on a bike ride, when I'm on tour, like just something that's like out of the blue, that's mm. kind of, that's beautiful. And it was beautiful. The energy was really beautiful and there was so much happiness. And I was just thinking about like, um, whenever I'm in, like, well, anywhere in the South where I live. I mean, I'm, I always am thinking about the things like our history and stuff. Cause I just can't ever stop. But, um, so I was thinking about that and how like all these civil rights heroes of mine, like they just suffered and went through and were in the trenches and just like went through so much for, on behalf of like humanity basically. And, and they still were able to sing and have art and just dance and be so incredible. Like you see someone like Mavis Staples and she's just like unstoppable. Right. And it's like all the, I mean, think about all the crap she went through, especially when she was younger and you just think, Mm -hmm. Oh my God, how can I even ever dwell on any of my problems when you have mentors like that? Right. Yeah. So that's kind of what I was thinking of. And, and then it extended into all sorts of, you know, different stories. So, but that's where it started. Yeah, it's great. It definitely like maybe Google a lot of do a lot of googling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Axon Jackson's an interesting term because it can be used in a lot of ways. So I was like, oh, people are gonna 
they might find their own definitions for this, but it just worked in the song for me as like a archetypal um, sort of superhero from the sort of 70s black film culture mm. in this way that was, I don't know, there's a lot of layers to it for me. So it was a personal reference in some ways. Even a sad song is better than no song at all. First Chuck Wills, widow of the season How I disfigured out that lonely bird's reason For sleeping all day and singing the same song all night long Poor Willie's gone, the sadness is defeating That aching in your heart surely bears repeating But it takes all day to gather up the strength to sing this song I get lost, I get lost. sad and lonely I count the stars above me. The next song I wanted to ask you about was Chuck Will's Widow, which is a bird around uh, your area. And it kind of seems like this is a song about counting your blessings in a way. Um, so this isn't exactly what you're talking about in the song, but it made me think of, of this kind of scenario where as someone who is like a public figure and received much adoration what's the experience been like for you when it comes to like hanging on to those times when you're reflected back to yourself in others like when people highlight something positive about yourself that you hadn't thought much of (laughs) i don't i usually try to uh, deflect that (laughs) Ah, no amy let it in (laughs) i mean i do i just it's my default you know i'm southern raised Southern, you, you deflect when you're Southern. Um, I, I, you know, I try, I've been trying to learn to take it in. I mean, it's, I don't think, I never think of things as so individual. That's my problem. You know, I'm very like community collaborative and everything always feels like it's not just of yourself, you know, and it's not just a humble default or something weird like that, or like inferiority complex or something. It's like, I truly believe that, you know, and so I truly believe there's so many people inside, inside me and inside whatever happens that's good. There's always all these hands at work in that. So, and I guess, you know, it comes from a religious upbringing too, where you're just like, you don't, you, you don't, you think of, you're always thinking of like when you're brought up in the church, it's the Holy Spirit working through you all the time, right? So mm-hmm. you get conditioned to that even when you're out of the church. <laughs> it's just part of your cosmos. You can't really, mm-hmm. it's like you can take me out of the church, but you can't take the church out of me. It's not going to happen. <laughs> so, yeah, so I guess, I don't know. Like sometimes I, it's, I feel honored by it. I try to take it in. It makes me feel good. Um, and I think... First, in the context of music, the thing that's the best for me is when it's like in that, probably in the context of the song too, it's like a group like I'm with her, when you get Sarah Watkins and Aoife and Sarah Jarose to come in and do something like that, or they didn't come in, but create something like that with you. It's like, that's, that's like the stuff. I mean, that's mm-hmm. like, that may, that makes you believe in yourself more because you're like, wow, they wanted to do this with me. That's cool. Because they're like, they're amazing, right? And they're like, just like, they're amazing musicians. And I love all of them 
as single musicians and I love the group I'm with her. So I guess something like that is almost the way that I can take in the mirroring back to me of stuff that's good. You know what I mean? Is it through the collaboration? Oh yeah. Um, do you and your family like board games? Yeah. 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 There's this really good one. Your daughter might be a little too young for it because it's like very complicated and there's lots of parts, but it's a bird game called Wingspan. I'll have to see if they have a Chuck Will's Widow on there. Yeah, it's like you take care of a bird sanctuary. Oh, my God. That sounds amazing. I'll send a link to Angie and she can pass it on. It's No, that sounds amazing. It takes a long time to learn, but then once you learn it, it's like, oh, man. It's it like activates all the all the brain that you have it's good. wow cool yeah. all right i like that so the next song from this room it ended up being a song about what you wanted to tell your daughter that you wouldn't be able to say later and you said i'm 58 she's only eight which means i'm going to be gone at a point when she's still figuring life out and i heard you talking on fortune's podcast about how you like always wanted kids which is like cool to hear about but also like very surprising and i'm like (laughs) i'm i'm at the age where i'm like am i gonna have a kid i don't know question mark um but uh i'd love to hear about your experience as an older parent to a young child yeah i mean that that is yeah i did always want a child i know that's weird that i mean that might be surprising but like ever since i was in my 20s you know so and i just never was in a relationship that was stable enough honestly um so yeah, I'm so happy. I feel like completely blessed. My partner's 10 years younger than me. So I got really lucky because she could still get pregnant. I tried and I couldn't. And so she did. And it's just amazing. And the father is part of our life. And, and the father's husband is, is my kid's nan, Manny. So it's, it's like this village basically. Um, but yeah, anyway, being an older parent, I mean, the drawback is that you do know that you're not going to see you know, in in the, let's just say in the most ideal world where your child is, lives and flourishes, which doesn't always happen in people's lives. And so I I want to recognize that. But in the ideal world, you know, my child grows up and becomes what, what he or she or they or whatever she will be becomes. And I get to see that, but I don't get to see as much of it as I want to. And I know that, you know, and I hate mortality, but that's the reality. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, so that's the drawback. And um, it's really the only drawback. Like for me, I feel like I might have wanted a child when I was younger, but I probably wasn't ready, you know. And now I feel like I can be present and focus and, you know, I don't have any I don't drink, you know, I don't smoke, you know, I just, I don't have the bad habits I had, you know, and so like, that's also good. Um, but it's just, I don't know, it's like this weird, it's a blessing that you maybe when you're older, you even appreciate even more. I don't know how you could, I mean, I think everybody that has kids is like, yeah, it's incredible because no matter what age you are, it's just an experience that's like, you know, if that's what you want, it's like an amazing experience. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I think, you know, for her, it's probably weird sometimes because I'm like grandparent age, you know, like some of her kids' grandparents are my age, but she doesn't think about it yet. You know, she knows I'm older and, 
she recognizes that from just, she's learned, she's figuring that out, but it doesn't, it's not like bothering, it doesn't bother her because I'm not like, uh, you know, I'm too old to do this or I can't, I can't do this with you or that with you. And um, yeah, and I think also like you think about as a parent, like I think about all the grandparents I know that have raised kids too. And it's like, you know, it doesn't have to be a limitation, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just, you know, it's great. It's great. I feel lucky. Someday soon, when you rest, it will haunt you. How the days just make them on. Pay no mind to you. And it's true, the time need not invoke you. Yeah, but your life is a thread. And bind you through Anyone can sing a song It's been written a million times Now you know you're not alone And you know it ain't no crime So hold this up when you need it most In the darkness, don't let it go While you are sleeping on that long, long road. The next song, Tear Down, um, it's a complex song about trying to approach racism in the South in the right way in terms of like taking down Confederate monuments. Also, uh, another song on the album, North Star, is about doing the important work of healing from racism. So we actually got to talk about this in our last interview we had, that the white South has a hard time with this like it's ingrained in in the south and you even recognize that in yourself and you said the point of tear it down is basically like i know it's hard but you've got to reach down deep and kill this part of yourself because it's got to go so do you see progress being made in the south like do you see a light at the end of the tunnel for this yeah i mean i i mean i do i know i mean there's a ton of work to be done. There's no doubt. But like, I've seen changes in my own community, you know, and people that I know that uh, that came to terms with their own racism in a way that's so honest and and they want to change, you know. And I think I've seen if I can see that in individuals, it gives me hope that it's happening on a bigger level. But yeah, I think there's progress being made. But it's you know, every time you make progress, there is a backlash. And so you're always pushing and pulling and things are so polarized right now that people are just so reactionary, you know, and they're just hanging on. I think is, I think, you know, you fear that your community is becoming obsolete in some way or you're disappearing or you're not seen as a white person. You get scared and you react, you know, and you, and, or you blame the fact that you lost your job or you didn't get a scholarship or this or that on like something, you know, the convenient thing is people of color, right? So it's a go-to, you know, and it's human nature as much as it is white human nature. And so I think, um, I think I see that fully, but I just feel like I see progress too. And Mm. for sure. I mean, this, you know, the South is interesting because we we also have we deal with people with communities that are changing demographically in a way that also creates all this tension that has to be worked out as well so before you get to the good stuff you got this hard stuff first right it's like 
all the rural communities where people are moving in or the, the, the racial makeup is changing and they fight it and the politics get hard. And then you get on the other side of it and, and people realize that it's just enriching to have mm-hmm. diversity, you know, in every way. Yeah. But it's, we're in that, I think we're in the part of the fight that's hard right now. Um, but you got to have it. You got to have the dialogue, which is super hard. But in the South, we've had it for a long time. So we know how it is. thing is a rumination on homophobia's poisonous impact um like homophobia in within the church and the fear that often keeps everyone down so you've had to overcome a lot of homophobia in your life including that which is taught or internalized how do you still experience homophobia within yourself or have you overcome it completely i have not overcome it completely um it's hard to put your finger on how you experience it. You know, it's like, it's like anytime you kind of feel less than, and it's, you can feel it located in that place within you. That's the homophobic part. <laughs> um, and I, it's hard to put my finger on when it happens, but, uh, it, it just does, you know, and it, in the context of our career, um, it happens in this way of like needing sometimes validation from sources that are more in the mainstream kind of straight world. And you realize that you're reaching for those for the wrong reason because you think it makes you more complete or something, you know? And so it's like this thing that you have to just check yourself on, you know, cause it's your ego too. You know, your ego gets tied mm-hmm. up in it and it's just, the way it is kind of, you know, and and then homophobia is so connected to sexism in some ways that you also have to separate that from misogyny. It's, it's a lot of, you know, you can't overthink it, I guess, but you just have to love yourself somehow. Um, and then realize it's that child part of you that, um, gets triggered. I don't know how it's a young part, you know, from, Mm -hmm. from early days. (laughs) Um, and it can be any, any time when you don't speak up for yourself the way you should, or you feel like, oh, you could, you know, like, I could never get that gig at that festival because, you know, they're, we're so old and we're so gay and we're so political. It's, they're not going to, you know, it's like when you just, just dismiss yourself constantly, you know. And I'll be like, but that's, I'm not being like homophobic. I'm being realistic. And it's like, but are you? <laughs> Or are you just being homophobic? Like, what's, you know, like what's happening in that, right? I think it's pretty powerful when you're in a situation like that and you're like, oh, homophobia. And then it just kind of like takes the air out of the room Mm. for me. 
mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. yeah. No, you're right. You're right. So speaking of that, the next song that I wanted to talk about is Subway, which you wrote for legendary radio DJ Rita Houston from WFUV in New York, who sadly died in 2020. In the geminate shower, you flew away, throw right in the sky, the maverick queen of our galaxy. Hey, these tunes I wrote for her, you and your golden ear, flapper, tell us how you hung the star. So Brandy Carlisle is also on this track, too, and I've heard Brandy talk about how Rita was a big influence on her. Um, it, like in the early days, encouraging her to be like a strong queer women woman in music. Um, can you talk about how Rita's example of being strong queer out in the music industry, how that made you feel, and what it was like to have Brandy on the, this song for that reason? Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, Rita was like super central and important to Indigo Girls and to me as a solo artist as well. Um, And not about whether she played our songs or not. It was more about like, she kind of just saw us, you know, for like what we are as queer women, but not only queer women, right? So it's like, you're queer women, but it's not just this, like you're this niche artist. It's like, yeah, be proud of who you are. And look, you're a musician. Like, it's like this way of honoring all the sides of things, she could do this. She did it with herself as well. You know, she was always just who she was in any situation. And the way it, the way that she was as professional as well was interesting to me always, because it's like she maintained this incredible balance of being like super professional and like, I don't know, just no, just like, no, no, like overcompensation or, or like falling apart or like anything that was visibly like her kind of being homophobic herself or by, or being self-hating or anything. It was always just like your positive foot forward, but super professional as well. And also like, like unshakable, like unshakable. And like, she could see you. And you could honor that you were, okay, yeah, we're both gay and like gay pride, you know, kind of vibe, right? But it didn't alienate anybody else from the room. It was just like a way of bringing everyone into the room at the same time. That's very hard to do, you know? And then it's very hard to do that when you're a radio DJ too, because you also have these people constantly asking you to play their songs, right? Always. Like that's the, I mean, everybody's like, Rita, play my song, play my song, right? And she was able to like, validate who you are as an artist even if she didn't play your song and that's mm-hmm. hard to do that's very hard you know so mm-hmm. I never felt like because there I certainly put records out myself as a solo artist where she didn't play anything and Indigo Girls too probably but it never made me feel like oh you're not playing our music because you know you're like you, you don't think we're good enough or we're gay or this or that it was never anything like it's like you trusted her judgment it didn't fit at the time you respected it and you took it as a challenge to make sure the next thing that you put put on her desk was better. <laughs> so that's how I looked at it. Like she always, to me, she challenged me and I respected her so much and I respected her taste and I respected her ability to create a playlist and 
play what was right for the station at the right times of day and just everything that she was able to do on a professional level, I had massive respect for. So when she didn't think something fit, it didn't bother me. You know what I'm saying? It just made me feel like, mm-hmm. okay, next time I'm going to try to be better. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But not in a way that was self-deprecating, right? Just in a way of like, I don't know. Like she, I knew she respected me anyway. So it didn't mean like, I don't think you're good enough. It meant like, this doesn't fit right now. I, that's like really hard to do that as a professional person in the music business. Yeah. And not make the other first person feel small. She never made anybody feel small. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I loved about her. And, and she did that in any community, but especially the queer community. You know, it was like, and women, it was just like, you know what? Just like, be proud of who you are. And so to have Brandy on that song, because I know, you know, she, Brandy was super important to Rita and, um, and certainly very important to me and to Emily and we adore her. And um, so, you know, I just, when I wrote it, I was like, I wrote Brandy and I just said like, hey man, this is for Rita. Like, you got to be on it because she loved you, <laughs> you know? And then Brandy was like, totally. So, you know, it just worked out. But that, and that, she did not do that live to tape. Just that was the like a one exception we had to make but yeah uh, totally but, but then we got the we got like 10 vocal tracks from her <laughs> <laughs> and we put it on tape before we mixed it so it had the tape thing in it but yeah so um yeah i'm really i'm just so i'm glad brandy did it and thankful that she did it and she spent so much time on it and made it amazing so yeah Fire a dog like muscadine Eat them from the road, eat them from the vine. He ain't picky, rain or shine. He'll walk with me in the old time. Um, the next song that I wanted to ask you about, Muscadine. I'm mm. saying that right. Muscadine. Yeah, Muscadine. You have a huge affinity for animals, and it seems like you are constantly surrounded by cats and dogs. So what has yeah. been your relationship with animals throughout your life? Uh, central. Since I was a very young child, uh, I've always had pets. Um, and my one of my earliest memories is rescuing this family of cats from the sewer and me and my siblings were down there with like, you know, a board and like turkey and trying to lure them up the board and get them. And, and one of them was had a big cut on it. And my dad, who's a doctor, he like took it out back and stitched it up, you know, for me. And oh. it was just like, you know, just a bunch of rascals. But um, yeah, I just remember like great, like a lot of love from animals and I've and I had a couple of experiences that were negative when I saw people abusing animals and it really uh it it was formative for me it was at a young age you know a very young age and like it's kind of like that set my path of like well I guess my mission is to take care of animals for the rest of my life because I saw this thing it was so horrible and I just need to heal it you know and so it did set my course and so that's what I do. You know, I rescue animals and, mm. and they are, you know, I guess who doesn't love a dog, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So I just have, you know, a lot of dogs and cats and hopefully eventually a horse and whoever 
shows up. <laughs> um, you wrote Muscadine after your beloved old dog died, and you say the song's about learning to love and receive love in the purest way, not to be picky about life, but to stay the course with curiosity and gratitude. So my wife and I recently lost our dog Willis, who oh. was a giant Mastiff Newfoundland <sighs> mix, just the mm. most amazing dog I've ever met. So he was nine, totally fine all day, started acting strange around dinner time, and then he died in her arms while she was like rushing him to the emergency vet of, uh, if you're familiar with bloat. It's, oh, uh, yeah. It's yeah. stomach twists. Yeah. 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 He was gone totally. within an hour and a half. Um, so, I mean, I'd love to hear any advice or perspective on that situation where, like, we're left blaming ourselves and thinking about, like, if we'd only done this or if we've only done that. That's so hard. I'm sorry. That's, like, so hard. Um, Thanks. Well, the whenever when I lose animals, it's always hard. Always. It never gets easier. Um, I mean, the first thing I do is to make myself feel better and now my child as well is like hey you know they don't they're not in pain so it's like you have this moment you know when your dog is in so much pain and you just want to relieve them and when they're not in that moment anymore there is a sense of relief to that I have to say you know that I can hang on to but the the missing them physically and spiritually in your house and your yard is and your companion it's in your bed and you know wherever you are with them it's just it just takes time it's like so hard and i still have dogs from 20 years ago that i it's hard for me to even think about them i love them so much you know yeah and i miss them so bad but um there's i always go you know it's weird, but I'm always like, okay, I got to save it. It's like, there's this place and dogs have these spirits that I feel like they understand, you know? And they're like, look, I made a space for you. Go save another dog. So it's like, do it. You know, that's how I, I look at that too. <laughs> and the blame thing is super hard. I mean, I, I luckily have this great vet who can help me with deal with that too. You know, he's, I've had him for 20 years and he's an older man and he's been through everything with animals and he just, I don't know, he just helps me feel better. I talk to him about it, you know? And so I'm always like, I, I'm worried that I, did, I waited too long to put an animal to sleep and they had to suffer. I, I've made that mistake. I've made the mistake of putting an animal to sleep too soon. I've made the mistake of having a cat outside with a dog that, that killed it. You know, like I've done so many things that have been mistakes. And I just keep saying, like, you know, your dog, they have a higher spiritual, to me, uh, they're evolved more than we are, I think. And so I think they understand more than we do. And so I think when that happens and you think it's your fault that you didn't see the bloat coming on or couldn't do anything, I mean, bloats, you're lucky if you ever save a dog from bloat. That's just the reality. And so to me, it's like animals have this peace that they know, right? And I almost feel like dogs are in some ways, you know, they're such a companion and they're so loyal and they're so tied to humans that they're just as worried about you and what you're going through as what they're going through. And it's just, so I try to just take all that and think about it and like say, you know, this dog 
was nature just gives them this thing that is more evolved and can deal with pain mm. and and passing in a way that we can't. We don't we don't understand transitioning, you know, but dogs and cats and wildlife, they they understand it. Like they wow. get it. And they know something we don't, you know, and so that's what I go to. And it's not just fake. It's like I really believe that. And so I just take that as counsel. Yeah. You know. I like that. But it doesn't get easier though. I mean, it's, you know, you're just going to you got to save another one. That's the reality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but you do. <laughs> yeah. We're looking. Yeah, um, a big one. Yeah. Bigger the better. Yeah. My wife right? was like, "Should we get a um Great Dane Mastiff?" And I was like, "Um, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to walk it, you know. She's like a, <laughs> she's like a former D1 athlete, so she's like an, you oh, know. And I'm, okay. I'm just like, you know, I could deal with 110 pounds, maybe, you know. But it's that's pretty big too. <laughs> 110 pounds, four feet on the ground. If that dog wanted to go somewhere, you had to go with him. Yeah, and a general leader's not going to help with that. No, it is not. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But that sounds like an amazing dog, though. Yeah. yeah. I have six right. I have six right now. So oh wow, six. I always have a full house because I. I think my problem is I'm scared to lose them too. You know. Yeah. So I'm like, if I have more, it helps me. <laughs> Overlap <laughs> you know the situation. Yeah. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Like, I, if yeah. I get a puppy, it helps my older one in some ways stay kind of more lively, and they teach. Also, I have one teacher dog. I always have a teacher dog. And they are like the dog that had, so I, before, if I know that they're getting older, I'm like, I got to get another dog so they can teach, like now, so they can teach that dog. The older dog is the teacher dog. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've been reading that on um, looking, looking for pets, uh, them, if you find a puppy that hasn't had the opportunity to be around other puppies, they always like insist that you have another older dog. I guess that's the teacher dog. So get both. Okay, great. <laughs> I'll I'll go to the I'll go to the pound right after this. There's Man. so many, you just do it. <laughs> yeah. Um I was talking with Kim Rule. I think you saw her last Oof. night. Maybe. I adore her. Oh my god, she's one of the greatest writers. Yeah. The best. Um she was telling me that you're really into Malcolm Gladwell and have convinced her to read Blink. So I would like to give you the opportunity to pitch Blink to everyone. Well, uh, you know what? But now I was looking at, okay. So I told her that I was thinking, I was going through all the Malcolm Gladwell books, but Blink, but then there was, I think what I want her to read is How to Talk to Strangers. Okay. Because I was looking, because after I had that conversation, I'm like, I need to go look at the books again and make sure that's the one I want her to read. So I'm going to send her that link. Anyway, but I don't, it's hard to talk about a specific book because I've just recently read everything again <laughs> and, and listened to audiobooks. So I, but I wanted, but I was talk. I think the one that I wanted her to read was how to talk to strangers. Cause that's the one that starts out with the Sandra Bland story. And, um, okay. and it's more about like, um, our misconceptions and how they, when we, uh, confront people, um, what can go wrong if we're not able to read the situation? And we often misread it. So with the police and the police misread things, we misread things. So I need to text her, but anyway, about that. But, um, I, but Malcolm, yeah, I mean, Malcolm Gladwell, I, I can go on and on. He's, 
he's uh, he's amazing. I just finished David and Goliath, which I which was amazing actually, and uh, Blink and How to Talk to Strangers. I read Outliers first, um, but the Bomber Mafia is still probably top one of the top two for me because the Bomber Mafia is an audio it's an audio book and it includes oral like interviews of people. So you've got so when he talks about someone from this military or whatever, some general or whatever, it's actually an interview, you hear the general talking. So it's like really like special, um, cause it's archival in this way that I really love. Like I'm really into archives. So it's like Malcolm Gladwell digs into that too. And so I think like what I would say about him right now is if you want to get the full experience, it's like his, his like, the projects that he's done that he's now done as audiobooks where he has the other voices talking to mm-hmm. those are amazing but but the way he treats the criminal justice system and mass incarceration and just the problems we have with how we deal with policing quote unquote is incredible and a lesson so mm-hmm. like he's got a he's like i think two or three of his books delve into that in one way or the other. So you're going to get it, you know, if you read one of those books, probably. The Bomber yeah. Mafia? The Bomber Mafia is about World War II. Oh. And napalm and the atom bomb. Oh. And, so, and, like, the ways that we bomb, the ways we figured out how to bomb people and kill people. It's, it's incredible. And it's stark because it's like, wow. I can't believe Japan still wants to be friends with the United States. <laughs> you know, it's not just right. Hiroshima. It's like yeah. we bombed, you know, over 70 of their cities to the ground. Whoa. And we just, we didn't even need to do Hiroshima. And I think we don't learn enough about this stuff in school. So it's like, and you don't retain it probably because it's so scary. But, you know, we just, war is cruel. It's terrible. Yeah. It's, awful. it's awful. And that book really drives it home. You know, mm. and it makes you realize that we need to think of things in a different way. Yeah. Very depressing. Sorry. Yeah. No, <laughs> let's. Uh, it's funny because like at the end of uh, our interviews, we like to do something lighthearted. If yeah, let's you, do it. Yeah. OK. So this is called the lightning round. So here we oh, go. Oh, scary. OK. <laughs> what was the first song you learned on the guitar? Uh, hang down your head, Tom Dooley. What is your coffee order? Tea. <laughs> I don't drink coffee. <laughs> That's acceptable. Um, okay. Who is your first celebrity crush? David Cassidy. Who's the nicest musician you've ever met? Uh, oh my God. There's like so many of them. Um... <laughs> The nicest musician I've ever met is Justin Vernon. First album you bought with your own money? Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player, Elton John. Whoa. What was your first concert? John Denver. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) What was your last concert that was not Indigo Girls or Amy Ray? Oh, that I went to. Yeah. Um, 
geez, because of the pandemic, I haven't really been to any shows. Um, oh, I went to see Cher Shook and the Disarmers right before COVID. Oh, very good. And it was one of the best shows I've ever seen, I think. Yeah, they yeah. are rad. Yeah. Uh, flying or Invisibility? Uh, wait, superpowers? Mm-hmm. Invisibility. Hmm, okay. Uh, Star Trek or Star Wars? Oh, that's too hard. That's not fair. <laughs> Pass. <laughs> I'm going to go Star Trek. Okay. And then this is the last one. Where's the most beautiful place you've ever visited? My, my backyard. Yeah. I, I, I live in the North Georgia mountains. It's like uh, on a river. It's not, doesn't get better than that. Um, yeah. I mean, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you want me to think of something else? Um, <laughs> Up to you. Uh, I mean, my favorite national park is Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. Maybe the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon might be the most beautiful place, actually. Yeah. But Yellowstone's my favorite park for different reasons. But the Grand Canyon is probably the most austere, awe-inspiring thing I've ever seen. Nice. Yeah. Great. Well, Amy Ray, thank you so much for taking the time. And congrats on the new record. It's really great. Thank you. Thank you for the interview. I appreciate it. This episode was produced by me, Cindy. Our music was composed by Alex Stanton. You can find all of the episodes on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can search for us on the SiriusXM map under Basic Folk, wherever you got this podcast. Or you can find us at our website, basicfolk.com. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.